Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton, and I'm here with uh, John and Matt. Let me suggest some things. That any religion or ideology that calls for human sacrifice, can we all agree that's evil? Yeah. And human sacrifice, whether it's an overt religious sacrifice in which we have to sacrifice our children, or it calls for human sacrifice in war, in wars of aggression, the sacrifice then that would be called for is not the sacrifice of others, of our children, or even of ourselves. In other words, I think there is, sometimes we we imagine that Christianity is the only idea in which we would lay down our lives. Oh, no, I think every little tribe, every nation state would call us to lay down our lives. So it's not simply a self-sacrificial, but there is an absolutizing of the tribe, the nation state, in which one is laying down life for the preservation of this human construct. Would that be point one? We're not trying to come up with the right ideology. I think the answer to this is really to understand that enfleshed, embodied experience participates directly into the being of God. And we can talk about that thing. Once we separate ourselves and start talking in in terms of ideology, even if we're trying to reach towards a positive, well, it's always going to fall short. I, I I think we need to just let the things that are finite simply be marks upon who we are and understand that what ultimate reality is always is just a participation in the life and work of God. There are people and there's a formation and there's an understanding that is unique to this time and place. That's right. Right? Yeah, I just wouldn't absolutize any of those finite markers. I would just value them as a part of our embodied reality. The idea of nation state and the the idea of imagining that we have our identity in those modes of ideology obviously is mistaken. What also needs to be preserved in valuation of any culture is a recognition that we're not just crushing the culture. So I think any disembodiment uh, of those, what those marks are, which is really what I see the Vitruvian man as being, it's just, it's a step back from any real, I'm actually thinking of metaphors that you used uh, back when we were in class and you'd say, well, uh, you know, who is Matt? Matt's the third person here. Uh, Are we going to figure out who Matt is by taking a picture of Matt? Are we going to find out who Matt is by catching a snippet of his voice? Are we going to find out who Matt is by dissecting him? Uh, No. (laughs) The answer is no. So how are we going to get at who Matt is? Well, it's through relationships. It's through stories. It's through understanding that the marks of his time and place uh, have to be got at in and through the narrative of who he is. And I'm saying, I think that's the only level that you can get at this any step away from that is either to use what you just said is to either denigrate these uh cultural marks or it's to reify them and i would want to hesitate to do either of those things but we would never reduce matt to concentric circles of relationship that constitute matt good thing he's here we can talk about him that's right (laughs) that uh it's not simply his local friends. It's not simply, in other words, who Matt is, 
is contextualized in part by the history of this time and place that is the American experience. Well, I'm not trying to say limit the individual or the individual to these things, but rather it's just the opposite. Allow these what we might call accidents, accidentals, or marks of culture, religion, race, whatever they might be. Allow those things to be truly finite things that mark us out, but uh, do not in any way limit us, that don't define us. If you define yourselves by these finite things, that's all you're going to get. It's ultimately reductionary, and I think that's why it's a denigration, even in the same sense that you're also reifying them at the same time. Mm -hmm. That really what you're saying is these things mark out the individual who is participating in the mystical body of Christ and thereby participating in the cosmic Christ and thereby participating in the life of the Trinity. It's just to get the upward direction the right way. So then I think to try to say, oh, well, there's a true American, you know, there's a sense in which we're true Americans if we do these things. Well, that's just admit, that's to take one of these finite marks of who we are and to, by reifying it, also to denigrate who the person is. But what we can say, I think, is what a true Christian would have to be, quite precisely because they are in imitation of the truly human one, right? And, uh, I'm just trying to rein us back in, maybe just maybe a little bit, to say, well, okay, you know, who who is it that is more human? Because what sort of modernity or the world or whoever would tell us is that, well, who's the most human is the is the rich, <laughs> is the people who have the power. To me, uh, you know, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization estimates that 815 million people in the world, one in 10, are hungry. 40% of black children live in poverty. So, you know, and I don't know, I don't have the incarceration rates in front of me, but I know that here in Indianapolis, the violence in, in the in the city streets is, is just out of control. So you have black neighborhoods where there's a war in the streets that in here in Indianapolis, there is a, an organization called Indy 10 Point where Christian people go out into the streets and they wear bright, you know, neon reflective stuff. And they literally go into the high drug trafficking areas. Their presence is felt and they try to minister to people and they try to insert themselves in very, very potentially dangerous situations. I guess I'm bringing that up to say, to sort of say, okay, well, to me, that's a sort of embodied Christian sort of ethic that uh, is actually going downtown and standing in the cold in the middle of the, the most dangerous neighborhoods to to sort of demonstrate uh, the love of Christ in the midst of the suffering poor. It's not to say that like rich people are any like less human or something like this, you know, than, than poor people. But my point is, though, is that I think that the church should be doing the hard work of identifying with these impoverished people, uh, whether white, brown, black, LGBTQ, it doesn't matter who, disenfranchised people, helping them that the world is basically saying to these people that they're less than human, that they're, I mean, you know, Chomsky makes the argument that a big reason why there's such a mass incarceration for black people is because they're not of that much use to big power. You know what I mean? It's, they can actually make more money off of these people in prison than they can, you know, if they're in the streets. So one way to control the population is to incarcerate them and to commodify them in that way. As Christians, I would hope that what we're doing is saying that, well, the very least, a human being is not just a commodity, that we're made in the image and likeness of the God. issue here is that we, we, we can make two mistakes. We can take any experience, whether it's black experience, Native American experience, American experience, 
And we can reify that and say that's where our identity is contained. We don't want to do that, right? We don't want to talk about in that sense that the truth of any group of people is their racial, cultural, tribal identity is not the be-all and end-all of who they are. In other words, we can do that. We can make a a kind of imminent frame, the absolute. But nor do we want to say to our black friends or our Native American friends, well, everybody here in this room, we're colorblind. We don't see that you're black or that you're red. We're all a, a kind of generic humanity in which our stories I mean, what you're really saying is our stories don't matter. And we all just boil down to being Christian. Both (laughs) things are a grave error. We have to intersect. We can't do either one of those things. And we can't just say to to Native Americans, well, your story doesn't matter, the color of your skin. Nor can we say that to any American. Your story doesn't matter. In other words, we want to lift Mm -hmm. up and complete and acknowledge a history, but we don't want to absolutize that history or be disenabled to critique that history. And so I think both things need to occur. And I'm afraid that in saying, well, we all just participate in Christ and it's a kind of bland, generic humanity that gets to participate. No, I think we do take up our identity. Mm, that's right. That's right. Do you do you all understand what the like the doctrine of the mystical body of Christ is? It's that in the same way it gets at it from the sense of thinking about the Eucharist. So if you break say you break the bread into a million pieces and you have a little bitty tiniest piece, Christ is fully present in that piece in the same way that Christ is present in the whole. Well they're taking those kind of principles and they're applying them to people. So that within somebody who is culturally marked as an American, as black, as white, whatever, that Christ is fully present in them and that they are a part of the whole mystical body of Christ. So it's not to take any of those markers and say that they don't matter. It's to say that they, are, that they matter supremely, that Christ is present in those markers because Christ took on flesh. But at the same time, what I don't think we would want to do is say that in any way there, there is a you know, there's a true American, but what you might be able to say, and it doesn't really make sense to use American here, but, uh, well, you could, I guess. But, you know, if you take the idea of blackness or you can take the idea of whiteness, you could say, well, black is beautiful. In one sense, you can say, well, these aspects of who we are can participate directly in the true, the good, and the beautiful, and thus participate in the life of God. I just don't think, I don't really understand the methodological move to move in abstractions and then say, well, there's a true this or there's a true that, there's a true Japanese-ness, there's a, and then just to ultimately reduce that thing back down to Christian principles. I don't think you've accomplished anything. And that's what I thought you were doing when you're saying that, um, you know, a true American would be one who wouldn't sacrifice the other. Well, essentially the move there is to misplace the marker of what it means to be an American, and then to reduce that back down to our definition of Christianity. Whereas I would just flip those things around and say that where the marker of American comes in is that our stories, as located in this time and place, do in some sense define our our finite reality. 
and that those things then participate in this other principle that is is a higher principle you know they participate in the beautiful or they participate in the good would actually be this in this sense that if we participate in the good as americans or we participate in the true as an americans that means we are not violent people but it's not in any sense that uh you know whether we're violent or not really doesn't have anything to do with that marker of being an american it has something to do with these transcendental principles. So I would just reorder it. That's what I was trying. I was making a methodological. I think that critique. we're going to have to make it more understandable, understand, you know, what's happening right now. Okay. I was trying to say a very precise thing. Let me state it in the language of Rene Girard. And that is that in a Girardian understanding that what forms tribes and peoples is the scapegoating mechanism. That is, the, the sacrifice, the violence that, is, that creates the sacred space is, in fact, that, that thing that allows a people to cohere. That violence is specifically, then, the necessarily a particular kind of scapegoating mechanism and sacrificial religion is what constitutes tribes and peoples. A strange thing happens in Christianity in its exposure of the scapegoating mechanism, and that is that there's an unleashing of the potential for violence. In other words, we'd say that's a good thing, right? That we want to, in some way, get rid of sacrificial violence, of sacrificial religion, even sacrificial Christianity that is actually reduplicating the scapegoating mechanism. Gerard's point is the danger in that is that once you get rid of the scapegoating mechanism, there is in fact the possibility of an uncontrolled violence being unleashed on the world. What I'm suggesting is that in our various forms of Christianity, we have in fact done exactly the evil that Gerard warned us about, that we've taken up a form of the faith that reduplicates the scapegoating mechanism that embraces violence as a part of a necessary part of the religion that in some way it does us a double disservice in the modern movements that we see in the nation state in various forms of nationalism which i hope we understand is a new form of doing identity in a sense it's a new form of doing identity it's an ideology that draws people together in a way that they've never been drawn together before. In other words, you're in the American melting pot. The only thing that holds people together is that ideology. But unfortunately, I'm afraid the, the, the modernist understanding, the modern ideology, in the way that Matt is describing it, in the way that Noam Chomsky is describing it, is in fact a hundred times more evil in its necessity of utilizing violence and control and sacrifice. But now it's, an, uh, it's violence that's unleashed. We get that in the way that we manipulate wars of aggression, in the way that we oppress certain brown peoples, or people. It, it very much depends on where they're located. But it's also most beautifully, and I'm using beautifully here ironically, in the notion of a mutually assured destruction. That is what is unleashed on us is literally the possibility of absolute apocalyptic violence that would destroy all humankind. So that a Christianity 
that in some way does not embrace the primary principle of peace is that Christianity that has been unleashed on us in its various forms. Any Christianity that does not embrace peace, I'm afraid, has missed this central aspect of the gospel. That would be what I was saying, is that what we can do then is that certainly we need to preserve people and identities and even aspects of culture. But step one in that preservation is to recognize that the preservation itself is dependent upon an understanding that violence and sacred violence has to be rejected. I like that. I like that. Some of that, you know, it's good. I mean, the way that you just put it succinctly is this good. And that is, is that you're saying that we can be an American who participates in the truth. Could it be that someone like Dr. King, for as great as he was, could it be that he didn't go far enough? That is that towards the end of his life, very close to the time of his death, he wondered if they were integrating into a burning house. Okay, in other words, at the end of King's life, he started to say things like America is a sick society. He found out, he's, you know, here's a quote, he said, I found out that all that I've been doing in trying to correct this system in America has been in vain. I'm trying to get at the roots of it to see just what ought to be done. The whole thing will have to be done away with. They, of course, went ahead and did away with King. My thing is, is I'm wondering to myself here, am I being a coward? Because on the one hand, I'm saying I'm not anti-American, but in my heart, I think that I might be. <laughs> because what we're describing here is the kingdom of darkness. I mean, you could call it Babylon, you know, you could call it any, you know, sort of number of ways of talking about it, but you're talking about the Satan or whatever you want, not just America, but I'm talking about the system of the world power that America currently embodies, right? Whatever the capitalistic, materialistic, nihilistic, violent, apocalyptic sort of violence that uh, America is capable of and, and that we're literally just taking over the world. I mean, Chomsky is, you know, that's he's just saying, well, yeah, America's uh, actually corporations are taking over the world, but America is providing them with the resources to do it, military might. In other words, what, what vested interest do I have in saying that, well, America isn't all that bad? No, actually, America, it could be, just absolutely stands over and against, as the devil does Jesus, or however you want to, you know, however dramatic you want to make it, the kingdom of light, the the kingdom of peace, the kingdom of love, where there are no starving children because you know the the billionaires are making more billions or whatever, right? I think that Dr. King did have a dream, and like Cornell West said, it wasn't the American dream. I mean, he really did have a, a dream for poor people and working people to just live decent, dignified lives. What I'm saying is, is that the the America's power is making that more and more impossible for regular, especially disenfranchised people, to just have decent, dignified lives because they're objectified because they're pornographied or whatever you want to. And so what we're coming up here, and this is the scary part about all this, is that I think that we're kind of afraid to step on people's toes and say, well, you know, uh, America's evil. You know, we don't want to just say it like that. But isn't that what we're really kind of thinking, guys? Isn't that kind of like what we're, we're saying? Well, this system 
this nation state, this ideology, this propaganda, first of all, it's, it's, a, it's an illusion because Christ is the king and the mystical body of Christ is the true, you know, humanity. And all this other stuff is just violent, lie, you know, lying, powerful, greed and lust that it's the Antichrist. Maybe it's just me, like not having the courage to just say, at the very least, you know, let the Americans be the Americans. That's my, you know, that's the thing with like gay marriage. It's like, well, I don't care. I mean, let the Americans marry whoever they want to. But if you're in the church, okay, so not, you know, and I know that this is, I don't mean to take, bring this issue up, you know, with with gay marriage, but we're talking about disenfranchised people and things like that. But are, are we, as Christians, do we not have the courage to say, that's it? <laughs> you know, I'm not saying we have to be like separatists or that we have to resign our citizenship or something like this. But we may have to have the moral courage. And that's what I've always respected most about Dr. King is his not just in the you know in the face of his house being bombed multiple times and him being stabbed and 40 death threats a day against his little girls and stuff like that uh and for him to just keep going and to keep speaking but for him to have and brother and remember they killed him they blow his brains out he and he wasn't even saying it really as strongly as what we're saying or at least what i'm saying and that is is that this system that we've been describing is just antithetical to what the truly human one looks like. You know, the the point that I got off Paul's uh, argument, you know, his blog is that Jesus Christ is, you know, the, of course, the truly human one, that he's the telos of all creation, that he's the predestined one, that he's the elected one, that he's the one that, uh, that true humanity participates in. And he was poor and he was despised and he was disenfranchised and he was crucified by the powers. And what I'm afraid of is that the church just in many ways doesn't really even tell the story in that way. We're telling the story in a sort of a triumphalistic way as if history really is written by the victors, right? I mean, how would the history read if you're reading it from the Navajos perspective or from the black or brown perspective or the Middle Eastern perspective? But of course, that's not how the propaganda works. And so what I'm saying is, are we also falling into, for whatever reasons, for me, again, I'm willing to admit, maybe it's just cowardice. Maybe I want to keep my job. Maybe I want, but I've already lost, you know, family. I've already lost friends. I've already lost jobs over it. And that is speaking that truth to power and saying, I know that you might not like what I'm about to say, but in many ways, the most vicious drug dealers in the world are terrified to go to an American prison. El Chapo's worst fear was to go out to ADX Florence in Colorado, where he would be locked up for 23 hours a day for the rest of his life. We torture people. We torture them for years in black sites. We don't have to go on and on about how terrible America is, but what I'm getting at is to in some way be polite or whatever in order to tell the story. Is that really the most courageous thing to do? To do? Is that how Dr. King would do it? I don't think you're actually saying anything more in the sense that I think that what's happening is just some equivocation. Like, Dr. King, Paul, myself, you are all willing to say the ideology of America is evil and it should be done away with. But what we're pulling, what we're trying to say, I think, is that people still have experiences that are marked out by, say, you know, having relationships and meeting Jesus in Ohio or Missouri or wherever you do this. And 
there is a way of talking about that that is a particularly American experience. Not that America is supporting that, but it is a part of the story. And so when you say, like, do away with America, like, well, what would that mean? Like, you're obviously, you, you're not going to do away with some of the experiences that we share in common because this is the place that we live. But, of course, we think that a part of the rule of God is to do away with the evil or the ideology or the system, the structural evil that is done by America. But to always just name it America is even misleading. Like, America does evil. Well, no, actually, there are just some powerful people with names that need to be saved that are doing evil. You know, America as an idea doesn't really do anything. But in the same sense, in a way that is mysterious, you know, it's it's a it's the mis- sort of the mystery of evil. It's it's illogical, but there is a sense in which the idea of something, the idea of taking this thing and absolutizing it makes it easy for people to participate in real evil. So I think several things are happening in that when you say that conversation. So like Dr. King's dream, his economic vision, right? that the normal person, black or white, whatever, the working poor, the homeless, they would be able to have a decent quality of life. Well, you're going to do that in a place and a time that's going to have some kind of organization. There's these principles of Catholic social teaching that come in, subsidiarity and solidarity. So we have to stand with these people and we stand with the human race. We also understand that uh, there's a way in which when we continue to focus on some structure at the top, that's when real evil gets done. What we need to focus on is the way our communities relate to each other. And those communities may have names or they may not. It doesn't really matter if you call it America or not. We're not going to in any way want to take away from the experiences that are marked out by time and place from those people. Uh, I'm not saying that we can in some way do away with these structures or whatever. I am saying, though, that in the hearts of Christians, we can do away with joining ourselves to idolatry, you know, to national... What do you mean by that? Say some specifics. Are you going to quit paying taxes? What What do you mean, I guess? Well, I, I get, okay, that's the, I don't think I'm going to quit paying taxes. But what I can do is resist the powers, whatever that might look like. And I think that part of that resistance looks like being, you know, a solidarity with the poor, so that would be one way, and that would just be one way of many that I think that. But what I'm, but what my concern is though, is that actually I do think that America is a, it can potentially be a, a dangerous. It's not just a name; it is an ideology, and that's an, that ideology is, is terribly violent and death dealing. And I know that that's that's that you didn't mean to say that it, it isn't. That's right. No, I said it was an ideology, but you realize an ideology is a lie. <laughs> that's the whole point. Is that, that like, an ideology is just a lie that people participate in to do great evil in the world. That's right. I mean, but this evil has names. Yeah, no, that's right. And and for Christians to, to expose that lie, okay, to tell the truth, so, you know, it's like, well, I don't, I don't know how to go down each and every social issue to say, well, yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. But, uh, but what I can say, though, is that maybe step one would be to divorce ourselves from nationalism, to divorce ourselves from violence, from greed, potentially from capitalism and in whatever ways that we can extract ourselves from capitalism. In other words, it's going to be dying, you know, to ourselves. But part of what it means to be an American Christian is that you're so saturated in the ideology that's given to you in the churches where you grow up and you say the pledges, pledges of allegiance before you pledge allegiance, you know, to the Christian flag or 
whatever, for the, uh, you know, sort of Awana children's program, you just, you say the Pledge of Allegiance. And then, then you say the Pledge of Allegiance to the Christian flag. It's like, well, wait a second. Mm-hmm. And that's propaganda, by the way. That's how that propaganda functions in the hearts of our young, our children. King is right that America is a, is a sick society. Then what we're saying, though, is that the church is the society, uh, hopefully, of the people who are becoming well. And what that means is, is our bodies are, you know, we're sharing in the sufferings of other people and that we're repenting of our own evil participation in these systems. And so I don't have all the answers, but what I do know, part of our job, I think, just even as Christian leaders is to, at the very least, expose how the propaganda works, how the idea, what the ideology is, how it doesn't have anything to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it has disastrous effects on real human people. Let me make it worse. I'm going to take what Jonathan said and what you said and combine it. And that is that this whole thing, in other words, I said the idea, well, the true American. And of course, the fallacy in that is to imagine that that consists of anything other than an ideology. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then you can turn around and say, well, that's true of every nation state. In other words, this form of identity that has arisen in modernity, that uh, is a pure ideology, what you're saying and what, uh, Matt, and uh, in describing, oh, maybe this thing's irredeemable. Well, in as much as it is pure ideology, as Jonathan said, a pure lie, then as Christians, that ideology of being an American is precisely what you're saying, Matt. In other words, there is no redemption for ideology. Bingo. Yeah, that's what I was saying. And therefore, the whole notion that we can in some way extract an aspect of it. In other words, we're talking about this as if we can describe it apart from Christianity. But you understand the religious element of the modern nation state is precisely that borrowed from Mm -hmm. a kind of perversion of the Christian faith. So that people's Christian experience is so interwoven with the nation state, and in particular the, the American nation state, to talk about the survival of an authentic Christianity while clinging to the ideology and identity provided by the nation state and not seeing any conflict in those two things is the great co-opting of Christianity that I believe in the New Testament is called the Antichrist. And so to pretend like we can continue to do both things at once, to even imagine that in King's, that his disenchantment with the American understanding. In other words, I think he is up against a form of evil that is just soul crushing. I mean, what he said, I mean, I just want to say the quote again, because it's powerful. He said, I have found out that all I have been doing in trying to correct this system in America has been in vain. I am trying to get at the roots of it to see just what ought to be done, but the whole thing will have to be done away with. Yeah, he's discovering ideology. I mean, I think that's what he's he's realizing that it is just an ideology. What it would mean, what America means in that sense, is just you know, it's a falsehood. I don't think he's saying that you do away with the reality of people's lives. That li- well, obviously he's not. You know, he's not saying that there's no value to the experience we share in this place with each other. 
fixing the top isn't going to fix that reality, is what he, I think he's trying to say. I mean, he's like, saying he, that everything that he's been doing to try to correct the system in America has been in vain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think he gets it. Like, it doesn't matter which way LBJ, you know, it doesn't really matter which way what LBJ will sign into law. It doesn't matter what way Congress goes. The, there are powers at work that are always going to oppress those at the bottom, and that's the way it's going to work in basically any nation state that's concerned with its own existence. But I think on the flip side, the hope is that that's not what has to happen in our in the communities that we actually participate in like we actually we can find solidarity with each other we could and you see that actually so imagine rural communities about a, a i mean sadly this really only works for all white communities because they were still racist and awful but 50 60 100 years ago it really didn't matter what was being decided in Washington DC that these communities had mostly poor people who lived agrarian lifestyles and they depended on one another and they had a good quality of life that would have participated in the true, the good, and the beautiful. That's sort of detached from what's happening at the level of, you know, which war America decides to enter or not to enter into. And I think that's what King is saying, that at some level, what's happening at the top is never going to be redeemed. Mm. You don't redeem an ideology, you just show it to be false. You know, a lie is a nothing. There's not anything there to work with. And I think that's what King's saying. No, I think that's I think that's right, John. And I and, and and I guess the only thing that we can do as Christians is to not participate as best we can, you know, uh, in the lie in the ideology, right? Well, I, I think actually it's to say that it is very subversive for us to go build true and good and loving relationships with one another and to live in community with each other, regardless of what's happening at the top. That that is actually mm-hmm. subversive to the ideology of mm-hmm. America. That's good. Wow. I mean, that's what Jesus does. It's not, I mean, I'm not coming up with anything original, right? I mean, that's oh, no, what no, early no. Christians did. They built communities in the midst of the Roman Empire that were necessarily subversive because they said, oh, women and men can eat together, or you can be friends with a woman and not just lust after her. You can be friends with people who are, uh, you know, were former slaves or poor, and you can do this in a way that doesn't subjugate them. Like there's true friendship. Uh, that's subversive. That's right, and, th- and that's the power of love. You know, Dr. King, one of my favorite books of his is a. It's called Strength to Love, and there, of course, he's laying out sort of love for enemies and nonviolence mm-hmm. and subversive ways, you know, to sort of resist the powers. And I think again that that's part of what the goal of forging plowshares is: is that sort of peace as a sort of subversive power. When Dr. King talked about love as the most powerful thing in the universe because God is love. And so if you can tap into the power of love, it's like you're tapping into the very power of God himself. For King, what that meant, though, necessarily was to, to not participate in violence to not participate in exploitive economics or anything else in as much as you can. So I like what you're saying about the the power of, yeah, you know, absolutely. even small communities of love and of peace and of friendship. Of course, the world would just say, well, that's just stupid. That's not how power, because, because they're in the business of acquiring power. And so you know, I think for the Christian, what we're to be in the business of is relinquishing our power. And I'm saying that that is going to very much go against the grain of, I think, of how the average American Christian thinks 
because we're again this so, is just the air that we breathe is that we're the most powerful you know we're the superpower you know the health and the wealth and the sort of you know christian nation and a lot of our weird eschatology where you know, sort of dispensationalism and things like that these things are all powerfully tied together not as good theology but just as like you know ideology but it kind of binds us though to us that to the lie so we have to do that hard work of, of you know, sort of extract, you know, extracting ourselves from mm-hmm. that lie. And the only way that we can do that, I think, is in and through uh, these communities of, of love and of truth, of prophetic truth. But, uh, you know, I've, they're not willing to, they're not always right. willing to have you. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Copeland gets at this in her when she's just talking about the lives of slaves and that what she ends up describing is ways in which at every turn the the planter class was trying to dehumanize these blacks in slavery and yet what is subversive is them you know christianity is literally being preached to them as this is why you should be slaves and you've got to be happy with your lot and you got to do hard work and they're hearing that message and they're saying well we're going to build a community amongst each other and we're going to see ourselves as the israelites Christianity was weaponized against them. They take Christianity on and it becomes immediately subversive to the planter class. Originally, there was this narrative of, oh, well, we can have these people as slaves because they don't know how to read or write. Well, so what happens next is the blacks begin to learn to read. They teach themselves to read and write. So uh, that's necessarily subversive. Well, the next thing is the planters out blacks being able to read or write. But there's a sense in which the Christian message, when it's enacted in community, regardless of what your standing is, will be subversive to those powers and principalities that are at work, that are ideology, that are false, that are, uh, you know, an actual human being trying to hurt you. It doesn't matter. It will be subversive. I think that's what King was doing. I mean, he real that's what he tapped into, right? He realized that uh, a message of nonviolence, mm. of literally letting these evil, you know, these white people beat them, blast them with fire hoses, set the dogs on them, was subversive to that power. Let me describe, Jonathan, in other words, what you are attempting to restate where I see you coming down. Okay. And again, let's make it concrete. We'll go back to original, our original illustration of the Vitruvian man. And that is the problem with it. It all floats free. It floats free of the world yeah. in that yeah. it takes the human body and reduces it to ratios. The problem that we're describing in the nation state is that it precisely is an abstraction. It's a pure abstraction from concrete real-world communities. And inasmuch as it's an abstraction, a kind of universality that floats free, it's completely, you know, it's a false transcendence, that it is in some way irredeemable. In in this sense, are we saying that the nation-state is in some way modernity, the modern Mm -hmm. way of organizing humanity, is in in as much as it's a step away from the community of the tribe and the family, which are true kinship communities, that the the abstraction multiplies the evil. In other words, that if you're going to replace the Vitruvian man with Christ, what has to be captured in that is a return to this concreteness, to a real-world embodiment, of a taking up of real world narrative experience. That's right. Which again is not a, a getting rid of in a, in its totality, but a preserving and lifting up of community. That's right. Of so uh, to say the way I think about it is it's not that 
Jesus is the true Vitruvian man, but rather it's Jesus instead of the Vitruvian man. And the way that we talk about Jesus, you know, I mean, you use Dorothy Day's phrase, and you can find Jesus on your altars where bread is broken. You can also find Jesus in the faces of the poor. And that's getting at the mystical body of Christ. You, you can talk about Jesus by talking about how uh, black women found Christian freedom and literal freedom in realizing that when they were receiving salvation, they could reclaim their bodies, which had been commoditized and sold, and understand their bodies as a point of connection with the divine, as sacramental. Or, and, you know, it doesn't just have to be black women, but so on and so forth. The element here, I'm still, in other words, there is a, an aspect in which you go to Navajo culture, or you go to Native American culture, or in many cultures. There is an understanding of a cosmos, of a unity of things, that all things are interconnected, that in its paganism is almost more Christian than perverse Christianity. And you want to, in some way, take that thing up, that element, and preserve it. Yeah, absolutely. The, the idea is that in uh, pagan myths, there is an appreciation for nature and the world mother, you know, the, the whole idea of the sun and the earth that were interrelated, maybe too strongly. But at least there is this affirmation of God's good creation is a way of saying it. That in pure abstraction gets lost. In other words, the evil that we're describing will not only plunder humanity, but it will plunder the earth of all of its resources to no end. I really do think that capitalism is the air that we breathe too, you know? So capitalism and national nationalism and all these things are just so closely intertwined. Right. Um, and we're talking about great evil. We've said two things, or we've laid out of the four points that you've made, Matt, that it is violence, but it's also a, a capitalistic violence that is interwoven into this thing, this abstraction that we call the nation state or yeah, the absolutely. American nation state. So that we, we're actually pinpointing the particular doctrines that lay out then that we can begin to say, well, the, the fundamentals of this religion, the fundamentals of it are that it is interwoven with the necessity of violence and the necessity of a capitalistic system evaluation. And it, re it really is, a, it functions like a religion. I mean, you have to have faith in the markets, et cetera. Yeah. So say it in Bartian terms that God in Jesus Christ has said no to the commodifying of people, their time, or their bodies. God in Jesus Christ has said no to violence. God in Jesus Christ has said no to sacrificing the other. I mean, in that sense, like, I think you can very strongly and truthfully say America is going to hell. That it's been condemned and God's no uttered in Jesus Christ. Part of our usage of the term American is that it is a semantic element, that we're all Americans, and that in that sense that the American experience is our experience. And so we can't simply identify it. Certainly we can say, well, there is that ideology that constitutes this notion, but there is this other aspect to it of an embodied people that also then is part of the element of what we think of as American. You're one of those things, in part. And so that there is an element of it that we do want to preserve. If you think of Japanese, there is an element of Japanese-ness, the nation-state, 
there is an over-religiosity to it that needs to be deconstructed, undone, and identified. And with Japan, it's just so clearly the creation of an ideology. It is with America, too. But in saying that Japanese-ness is, you know, that the nation-state is a construct like that of the American construct, you don't want to do away with the uniqueness and I'll, I'm using that in, in all knowing that uniqueness is one of their favorite ways of talking about themselves. But there is the, the language. There is that history. Think about the history of the native peoples. The guy that I was reading, we've been very unsure of how to date these things. But he's saying that recent dating puts it back at 19,000 years, that these peoples inhabited the native peoples inhabited this continent then think just the number just you know sit in that number a little while 19,000 years of history and experience but what got obliterated for the most part or in many people's minds got obliterated and should not be obliterated is that history in other words there were entire peoples there were hundreds and hundreds thousands of tribes of people many of which just disappeared completely. And so our tendency is to say, well, history started when the Europeans arrived and Christianity yeah. intersected with those people. That is, again, the lie of colonialism. Yeah. What we want to acknowledge in people and acknowledge in history is that we can't just wipe out 19,000 years. We can't just say that that's of, of no consequence that that too then is lifted up. And understand, as I'm saying that, I'm not in any way romanticizing that experience. They too were tribal and of varying yeah. degrees warlike. It was not an equal thing, you know, among you can't, you have to talk about particular tribes and particular peoples in, in their embrace of, of things in their own unique way. But certainly what you don't want to do is just imagine that it's of no consequence. And that's the sense in which I think that there needs to be a preservation even of the American experience, inclusive then of that history, that so many things flow into this thing and all of that has to be taken account of. So in saying the word American, I did not mean simply that ideology that in some way we all recognize is a pure construct that is inadequate to do identity. You know, I couldn't help that we, uh, that I was born, you know, in, in Ohio, in Eastern Ohio, you know, in America, and that I inherited a certain way of being in the world just by, you know, vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, your uh, being born in the United States. The ideology of being American is the evil. And so we can't just simply dismiss uh, being American as synonymous with that thing that we're identifying with ideology any more than we can dismiss being Japanese simply being the nation state. No, it's inclusive of that history, that peculiar language and those particular peoples. And I think that is what's subsumed in when we, or it can mean that. In other words, when we say American, it should mean all of these things. But of course, what we tend to think of is that kind of civic religion, that sensibility that fuses really Christian, a perverse Christianity with uh, a patriotic notions of a liberal democracy, 
which was precisely the point of some of the founding fathers. Their whole notion of what freedom amounted to was freedom of religion as it came to unfold then in the American experience. And that's also what their Christianity amounted to. And so in some way, this thing has been fused together that we call America. We want to untangle those knots and say, yeah, but it's, it's also there's many things that feeding into this thing, into our experience as Americans. Uh, that is not tight. That is not tied up in those. And part of what that means, I think, for a lot of us, though, and especially for white people, um, can mean you know privilege. It can mean you know whether that's financial privilege. You inherit a whole worldview, of course, right? From a young age, you're indoctrinated. Pledge of Allegiance, you know, with uh, patriotism, and um, these are very strong you know, ways of, of being that are just going to sort of always inform who you are. And perhaps we're all in the process of extracting ourselves from the lie uh, in all of its various manifestations, you know, and that that's part of the work of being converted to Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.